Good morning. I'm Rick Hollinger, and I'll be reading this morning's scripture. If you'd stand, please. The reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found the colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some of the people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Father, we are gathered as your family, your beloved sons and daughters. We pray that this morning we would sense more of your deep and abiding love for us. Jesus, you are head of this body. We pray that your life would be flowing into us. In spirit, we are your temple. We pray that you would fill us to the fullest. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Uh, Imagine with me this morning that you are uh, on a long flight, say to Europe, and you're a cheapskate like me, so you go and find your seat and coach, and you're sitting next to this nice, older-looking gentleman, and you sit down and you're thinking, okay, do I strike up conversation? It's a long flight. I don't know if I want to talk for, you know, eight hours. Or do I put my earbuds in and listen to music and watch a movie? And you decide to be polite and not antisocial, and so you strike up a conversation with a gentleman, and you actually hit it off remarkably well. You're talking small talk at first, sports, and what you're going to be doing in Europe, and weather. But as the the flight progresses, you start getting into deeper conversations about life and about just sharing your, your personal story. And, and as the flight is nearing its end, he gives you his contact information and says, you know, anytime you're in Europe, look me up, give me a call. I'd, I'd love to chat more. I'd love to get to know you better. I'd love to go play a round of golf with you. As you're deplaning, one of the stewardesses grabs your arm and says, do you know who you were sitting next to? No who you were sitting next to? That was King Philip, the king of Denmark. And you're shocked. The king was flying coach. (laughs) And he gave me his number and told me to call him. I imagine the disciples had similar kind of moments after they had walked through Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, and they were left now pondering these great truths of Jesus, who is king of all. And he sat by the campfire with us, and he ate lunch with us, these poor fishermen. 
And Peter, remember the time you yelled at him for taking a nap in the boat? You yelled at the king of the universe. The disciples, I'm sure, had those moments. I think we have to have those moments, too, where we are reminded of who Jesus is, because we are in an incredibly personal intimate, close relationship with Jesus. We call him our friend. We sing songs. Jesus, what a friend of sinners. And he, he is our brother, and we know this, and he's our personal savior, and we cherish this. But he's also Jesus, the king of all things. And it's good to remind ourselves of that, because he is mighty king, Clothed in glory, in splendor, with power, with all authority. That is our Jesus. It's a truth the gospel writers were highlighting as they retell this story of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. This truth that Christ is king. Let's take a few moments to kind of unpack how the gospel writers tell this story. In many ways, it's an enacted parable. Jesus told lots of parables. He enacts this one. He arranges to have a ride waiting for him as he approaches Jerusalem. That is unique because this is the only place in any of the four Gospels where we see Jesus riding somewhere. He's always walking. And most of the pilgrims who were going into Jerusalem for Passover would have been on foot also. So it stands out that he's riding here. But he's not riding a chariot or a war horse or anything noble. He's riding a donkey. Reflecting that this mighty king is a humble king. A couple weeks ago, I read an article about Warren Buffett. I don't know much about Warren Buffett. Don't know if I should like him or shouldn't like him. I know he's rich. And according to this article, he still lives in the same house that he bought in 1950-something. And he buys his cars at a discount because they've been damaged. You know, hail damage kind of thing. I'm like, I don't know if I should, but I, I, I like that. That's cool. It's a level of humility, or at least of simple tastes, that this incredibly wealthy man would ride a hail-dinged Camry. Jesus one-ups him. He's the king of the universe, riding on a donkey. But several of the gospel writers point out that this is a donkey, uh, the colt, the fold of a donkey that has never been ridden before. It hadn't been used for secular or mundane purposes. This donkey had a sacred appointment to be the steed that would carry the king of glory into Jerusalem on this day. And as he rode, people laid their cloaks on the road in front of him. Kind of an ancient rolling out the red carpet. And they waved palm branches, a signal of victory that you might wave in front of a conquering general or king. And they were shouting, Hosanna, which is an Aramaic word meaning, save us now. 
comes from Psalm 118, verse 25. It's one of the Hillel Psalms that the Jewish people would sing around these great festivals, including Passover. But they weren't just singing this out loud, in general, to the sky. Their praise was directed towards Jesus. Hosanna to the Son of David. The Pharisees actually said to Jesus, stop them. This isn't appropriate. And he said, if they don't sing, if they don't cry out, the stones will. That's how appropriate this praise for the King of Glory is. Matthew, looking back at this, this triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, says this was to fulfill what the prophet Zechariah had written. And he quotes from Zechariah chapter 9, Say to daughter Zion, See your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He, he quotes Zechariah chapter 9, he says, This is that. But if you go to Zechariah chapter 9, the king who comes riding on the colt, the foal of a donkey, is God himself who comes riding into Jerusalem, returning to establish Zion, to return it to its prosperous ways. He's a king coming to bring his people out of exile and to reestablish them. And it says in Zechariah chapter 9, nations will now come to Jerusalem because the king God is present there. And he will be his people's God and they will be his people. Let's just, reading this through Zechariah's lens and as a fulfillment of this grand prophecy just underscores the humility of our king. Not just a great and powerful king, a divine king, God Almighty himself here, riding on a donkey into Jerusalem. Now the cynic in all of us is thinking, oh, politicians do that kind of thing all the time. They go to a greasy spoon diner for a photo op, hanging out with a hoi polloi. Well, this isn't just a photo op for Jesus. He became one of the masses, became one of the common folk, and rode this donkey into Jerusalem, the place where he would be executed as a criminal in the most shameful of ways. His humility runs deep. But don't mistake his humility for weakness. He is Christ, the Almighty King. This is a truly important part of Jesus' story. Because the drama of Good Friday and the drama of Easter, the good news of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected is placed within the broader context of the drama of Jesus, the Messiah, the King, who is coming to Israel to fulfill all of the Old Testament prophecies and all of the Old Testament promises. Promises made to Abraham when God chose Abraham and said, through you I will bless all the nations. Jesus comes to fulfill that. He comes to fulfill the promise to David that your kingdom will have no end. Your descendant will be on the throne forever. 
And your kingdom will be established as a kingdom of righteousness and justice and peace. He comes to fulfill that promise too. Think about it. There's a reason why Jesus wasn't born in, say, Central America. And wasn't crushed under the, you know, the heel of the Aztec or Incan Empire. And he was born in this time and this place in Israel because he came to fulfill Israel's story. Jesus isn't merely a hero who saves his people from a bad fate. Oh, he is that, but he's not merely that. Viewing him in that narrow kind of a way makes much of what he said and much of what he did superfluous, meaningless. Jesus is more than that. He is king. Now in light of that, in light of how the gospel writers portray Jesus as this humble king, I have three statements with a word of application for each. The first statement comes as an answer to the question, who or what is he king over? I remember growing up, my dad would sit in his recliner in the living room and say, I am king of all I survey. That usually came in response to, can we turn the channel? Uh, His kingdom included the remote and the fridge and probably the keys to the family Astrovan. He had final say there. But it was a limited kingdom. Where are the borders of Christ's sovereignty. Where does it end? What is he king over? Well, we know he is king of the Jews. From his birth, the Magi came looking for the one who was born king of the Jews and and brought gifts fitting a king. And Jesus went preaching. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is now. Referring to it as My kingdom is king of the Jews. Pilate asked him, point blank, are you the king of the Jews? And he says, you've said so. The soldiers mock him and put a crown of thorns on him, saying, if he's the king of the Jews, let him save himself. And the authorities put a sign over the cross saying, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And the Pharisees complain and say, don't say that. Say he only claimed to be the king of the Jews. And they said, what I've written, I've written. Truth. He's king of the Jews. He's king of the church also. In Colossians chapter 1, and again in Ephesians, Paul refers to Jesus as the head of the church. Head could mean source, as in headwaters, and it does mean that. But it also means authority. He is Lord. He is sovereign. He is king of the church. He's also the king of the nations. John in Revelation chapter 1 refers to him as the ruler of the kings of the earth. In Revelation 15, it's the king of nations. Revelation 17 and 19, king of kings and lord of lords. Kings, presidents, prime ministers, their authority is derivative. Christ 
is king over them. They're vice regents that he brings up and brings down. They owe him loyalty and obedience. He's king of all, including the nations. He's also the king of history. An incredible scene unfolds in Revelation chapter 5 when angels and saints say, who is worthy to to unroll the scroll and break the seals that will bring history to its conclusion. And, And they look and no one is found worthy except the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus, the king of the universe, the Lord of history, he's worthy to bring history to its conclusion, to its goal. I could go on and on listing things that he is sovereign over. It's probably easier just to say he's sovereign over all things. He's the king of the universe. Angels, demons, wind, waves. Matthew 28 says all authority. It's pretty comprehensive. All authority has been given me, Jesus says. Abraham Kuyper, the Dutch theologian, famously said, There is not a square inch of the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. I love that famous statement. But frankly, it doesn't go far enough. The domain of our human existence. Does Christ's authority stop there? No. St. Cyprian, Christ has dominion over all creatures, a dominion not seized by violence or usurped, but his by essence and by his nature. All creatures are under his sovereign control. He's king. And even the inanimate parts of creation, there's not a person Not a particle, not a king, not a kid, not a queen, not a quark, not a nation, not a nook or cranny in all of the created order that isn't under the sovereign reign of Christ. My first statement, Christ is king of all. And the word of application is worship. Worship the king. We are wired to worship. You see it in the veneration, undue veneration, that we give celebrities, athletes, rock stars, kings, presidents. It's in our DNA to worship. But worshiping those things is idolatry. Worship the king of the universe who is worthy of all worship. Find the freedom of unencumbered worship in the person for whom you were created to delight and to worship. Christ is king of all. The second statement, Christ is king of our lives. Let's make it a little bit even more personal than that. Christ is king of my life. Christ is king of your life. 
when we talk about king of the universe, king of all things, we might get lost in the scale of that. It feels so big it might feel impersonal. I, I tried to think about the largest company I ever worked for. And in the 90s, I briefly worked as a telemarketer for MCI. Don't hate me. I'm still trying to forgive myself. I was a peon in this large company. The president, the CEO, Gerald Taylor, did not know my name. Frankly, I didn't know his. I had to Google it this week. Presidents don't know privates in their army, usually. Jesus is king of the universe, but he's king of me. There is an ancient, beautiful song of the church that combines these two things so well together. Who is the king of the jungle? Who is the king of the sea? Who is the king of the universe? And who is the king of me? His name is J-E-S-U-S. Yes, he is the king of me. He is the king of the universe. He is the king of the jungle and the sea. He is the king of the jungle. He is the king of the sea. He is the king of the universe. And he is the king of me. Between the services, Linda reminded me of that song and told me I had to do the gorilla noises when I said jungle. And that is a bridge too far. But... It's a beautiful truth kids can sing about and we should embrace. He's the king of our lives. He knows my name. He will confess my name before his father. He will give me a new name fitting with my status as part of his new creation. It's not just my name he knows. He knows my life. He knows my doubts, my fears, my sin. He knows the secrets that I keep even from myself. But he doesn't keep me at arm's distance. He doesn't stand afar off. He comes riding humbly into my mess of a life and brings order. He he does it on the large scale too. He he comes into his creation and reestablishes order in the cosmos. But he does it in my life, reordering my loves, reordering my desires and my affections. I love the story of Robin Hood. While King Arthur, I'm sorry, King Richard is away fighting in the Crusades. The sheriff of Nottingham uses the opportunity and becomes a tyrant. And he's resisted by Robin Hood. I I love it when Disney tells it with foxes and bears. I love it when Kevin Costner. It's just a great story. And it's the story of my life internally. I don't know how it's possible, but I can be the sheriff of Nottingham and Robin Hood at the same time. Noble desires, noble intents, and the worst tyrant sitting on the throne of my life. And Jesus comes riding into the mess of my life to that disordered chaos, and he brings peace and order. Jesus is king of our lives, and the word of application is obey. Obey. 
As king, Jesus makes demands. We bristle at that word, demands. But he is the king. You don't think Jesus makes demands? Read the Sermon on the Mount. They're demands. Read his teachings. He makes his demands sometimes through his apostles, like Peter, like Paul, like James. James is full of demands from our king about how to live an ordered good life. He makes demands, but he also says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Obey this king. He's good. The third and final statement. Christ is king even when he doesn't, even when it doesn't look like it. He's king when he's riding on a dumb donkey. And his army is a small band of fishermen and tax collectors. Not a mighty army. Uh, Not the mount of a king. But he's king. He's king when he's standing trial, beaten and bloody, wearing a mocking crown of thorns. He's king. He's king when he's dying on a criminal's cross. And when he's hidden from our sight, we don't feel the kingdom around us. He's king. And when wars rage, and when Christians are stoned, when cancer destroys, when evil men do evil things, Christ is king still. His kingdom has no end, and there are no limits, no boundaries to his sovereign reign. The word of application is trust. Trust this king. A couple weeks ago, just driving across town, was having a conversation with Jesus. And if I'm honest, it was more like an argument. Things weren't going the way I thought they should go. And at the end of the anger and the tears, just yielded in trust. I don't know, but I give it to you, my king, Jesus. I certainly wish I had started there. Let me encourage you to find your way there through whatever it is right now that might make you doubt his kingship. Trust that he is king. We know Jesus was more than a good moral teacher. He's also more than just my personal savior. He is that. He's not less than that. But he's more than that. He's sovereign king over all things. All nations. All peoples. All history. Things seen and things unseen. And as such, he is to be worshipped, obeyed, and trusted. And in that, we will find peace and life eternal. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful. Grateful that 
the king of the universe, your son Jesus, has called us friend, has called us brother, has shown his humility not just by riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, but by becoming human to begin with, and by going all the way to a cross so that he could provide amnesty for sinners to come into his kingdom. Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for the confidence that we have that our king is good and his kingdom is just and righteous. Father, we pray that you would give us hearts to worship, that you would give us the ability to obey and to trust even when we don't understand. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.